So you remember when you were in high school, and there was always that, that person who had the cool car, or maybe a cool truck. There was, always, there was always that person. And I don't know if this is your story, but this is certainly my story. That person was never me. Like, I just never had that car. You know, it was the car or truck that everybody looks at, and they're like, wow, that's awesome. I mean, that is like the coolest thing on four wheels, two wheels, whatever it is, that story. You know, like, anybody remember that? Like, when you're growing up, and like, and you just, you knew that there was that person who had like the coolest car of all time, and you're in high school. Anyone? Anyone? Don't leave me hanging here. Yes, thank you. There's always that person. Well, that person, it was never me, but it was my brother, which made it even worse. So my brother is a couple years older than me, and when he was a senior, I was a freshman, which was awesome, which meant I had a lot of built-in bodyguards at the time, all his friends. They would beat on me a little bit, but they'd, be, they'd protect me from everyone else, so it, it worked out okay for me. But my, my brother had, a, a, it was early 80s, 19, or early 1980s Z28, and it was awesome. When he got it, it literally, it was like, a, it was a, a widower's car, and her husband had bought it. It only had like 30,000 rigid miles on it. Paint job was awesome. Interior was awesome, and it was fast. So my brother um, had this car, and it was pretty awesome. Freshman year, he's a senior, so I literally had um, just the coolest taxi of all time my freshman year. Um, Probably none of you could say that, but I did. And so when we would go to school, we'd always kind of, you know, we'd have to cruise a little bit. I mean, you know, you're going to school, so you got to cruise a little bit. You got to see impressions. So we would go up and around where uh, the city square was, where we lived, and we didn't have an anti-cruising ordinance like we do here in Dublin. And you could cruise, and that was just what you did. And so we'd always kind of make the, the loop and go up around the square, and then we would come back by Hardy's, then we'd go to McDonald's, then you go around uh, into McDonald's parking lot, and you do it all again until you get dizzy. That's just what you did, and that's how you cruised. Well, on this particular, this one particular morning, as we're on our way to school, we made our loop up and around the square. Everything's great. We're listening to, um, I'm not even going to tell you who we're listening to, um, but I can say that it was loud. I do remember exactly who it was. I have this weird thing that I, in, uh, in the midst of some tragedies, I always remember the song that's playing at the time, so it's really, really weird. And this one was one particular 80s hair metal band, so, and it was like just cranked. And so windows are up, it's cold, and we're driving after we'd made our loop around the square. We're going by Hardy's, windows are up, music is loud, and we're just listening to Love Song, and you, some of you have an idea what that is now. And so we're, we're listening to this, and, and then out of the blue, with absolutely no warning, um, as we are turning there was a fire truck that was decided that it was trying to go straight when we were turning. And literally, my brother turned this beauty Z28 into an accordion and got nailed by a fire truck on the way to a fire. Go. Cool. So, we didn't see the lights. We certainly couldn't hear the siren. And in that, that moment in time, so etched by that song. Every time I hear that song, I'm like, ah, I remember that morning. I remember how cold it was. I remember everything about it. But it was so unexpected because, I mean, it was his senior year. It was like, man, it was like, you know, the, the glory year of high school. My freshman year, I wanted to get over it. But, but it, you know, that whole experience. But it was so unexpected. And for us, 
Of course, that, that tragedy was unexpected, but isn't that just true of life? Like so many times we go through life and things just happen to us that we just totally don't expect. We're just blindsided by something that happens. Some of us, maybe we've, we've lost a loved one and it was just like, whoa, it sent you reeling for a short time. Maybe for you, it was when a spouse said, you know what, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm washing my hands of this thing and, and we're going to go our separate ways. And you're like, that, that would have been unthinkable earlier in your story. And now this is your story. Maybe for you, maybe it's what just happened. Or maybe for you, it was a car crash. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe for you, the, the most unexpected thing was when your wife came home and said, honey, I'm expecting and you're like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I, my life has just changed. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You have no idea what that means. We all go through these things that, that we're just totally not expecting. And that's what we see right here in this passage. I love this. And if you have your Bible, please go to Judges 11. You see something in the, the beginning of the storyline of this, of this guy's life. You see something that's just totally unexpected. It takes a turn. And it's so encouraging because you see at the beginning of his storyline that his life is marred with such deep tragedy. Such deep tragedy. But I'm so thankful that God doesn't just leave him with that tragedy. As a matter of fact, he is actually mentioned in the hall of faith. If you're a Christian this morning, you know that would be Hebrews 11 and all of the, the big like well-known people of the Old Testament are made reference in Hebrews 11, and they're just, we kind of call them the heroes of the faith, the hall of faith, and his name is in there. And it's so surprising the kind of, the kind of people that God uses. So many of you don't know my story, and I was not raised in a Christian home. As a matter of fact, I was the, the first generation Christian in as far as I remember in any of my family. Um, I, I lived my life and had some church experiences when I w was a kid growing up. Um, we weren't a religious family, only religious by the fact that they used to drop my brother and not my, my, my dad or, and then my, my mother, after they divorced when I was four, they used to drop, just drop us off at churches. So I always thought that that was the best place to be, a good place to get moral, a good moral founding. But I would have never thought in a million years that I would be here, that you'd be listening to me. I, I mean, this, this is so far removed from what I thought the story of my life was going to be. I thought that I was going to get married young, that I was going to have kids young, that I was just going to work, and that I would one day retire, and that would be my life. And God had other plans, and I don't tell you, I don't tell you that to, to, to glorify myself, but I just want you to know, you can even look at, at me, at your pastor, you can look at me and say, you know what? God does amazing things when people simply say yes. They say yes. I didn't say yes to this position at first. As a matter of fact, first thing I said was yes to Jesus. And then after I said yes to Jesus, then I said yes to serving Jesus. And I was just serving. My, my wife and I, we were telling this story this past week. And like, we, we decided to say yes and serve Jesus. And because if I had some brokenness in my past, then God used that for us to work in children's ministry. And we worked in children's ministry and we loved those kids. And those kids would break your heart. They would break your heart. 
But because God had comforted me and God had comforted my wife, we wanted to leverage that comfort to help these little kids. And maybe so their stories didn't have to end in tragedy like mine began. And yet, then we started, after saying yes to serving, serving Jesus and to serving those kids, then uh, through the process of events, and there's always pivotal circumstances in life, then God called us out of that, and then he called us into then a ministry position, not this one, but just kind of just another ministry position where I was actually taking care of a children's ministry. I did that for five years, and then God kind of woke me up to the, just the vision of what this could be, just to what this could be. But it started with a simple yes. Just with a simple yes. And as we jump into Judges 11, I I want you to kind of have that as a backdrop of our understanding of this. As this individual, he becomes an unexpected leader. But I love the type of leader that he becomes. Because he's not the type of leader that we kind of prop people up to be right now. We think in leadership terms, when you hear leadership culturally, we kind of get leadership mixed up with some mindset that people exist to build us up. That if you're the leader, then everybody's job is to make you look good. And that's not what you see in this story. As a matter of fact, he was dis- this individual was discarded and God called him out of, out of a place of loneliness and heartbreak to then lead in a most unexpected way. But we get the term leadership, I think, mixed up with, with another type of mentality. And that's the rugged, individual, the rugged individualist mentality. It's a term that I, it's not new to me, new, or maybe it's new to you. It's not new to me. It's actually been around for over 100 years. But I want to give you a brief definition so we kind of understand foundationally what leadership is, why it's important, and maybe even how you can be a leader. A rugged individualist is someone who believes that they don't need anyone else, neither God nor people. So a rugged individualist This is a lie that's just kind of spread throughout our culture. It says, I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I gave my life to Jesus when I was five. I'm saved. Now I get to live life on my terms. I get to do whatever it is that I want to do. And this lie has been kind of spread even throughout our culture, our our local culture, of saying, as long as I have the truck of choice, as long as I have the clothes of choice, as long as I have the boots of choice, as long as I have the, the perfect family of choice, as long as I live in the right neighborhood of choice, then I'm all good. I don't need God. As long as I have a job and I've got some income, I don't need God. And then as a consequence to that, it's this false mentality that we don't need people. That we just don't need people. We've been on this journey this whole year of just speaking and just giving these, these three words that you, many of you haven't heard if, unless you were here for this series. For us as a church, we've been learning how to go from me to we, which means it's breaking the facade of the individual and then adding our individuality, our creativity, adding our, uh, our faith story, adding our redemption story, even adding the comfort that God has given us and leveraging that to help other people, going from me to we. 
But we have to break free from this rugged individualist mentality that we just don't need God. I can do this. We start to think, I I can do this. If I'm strong enough, if I'm smart enough, I go to the right school, I have the right family line, I have the right truck, I have the right car, I have the right clothes, I have the right kids, they're in the right activities. I don't need God and I don't need people. I hope to break that this morning. I hope to break that. And maybe you've started to believe that, that part of the American dream. The problem with that is it's rooted in the mentality of it's just all about you. It's actually not about God and you don't need God and you don't need other people. But the, the, the big problem that we find with this is this. If that is your reality, you will only have the strength that is available that you can provide. You will never experience true and lasting change. You will never experience the hope of Jesus Christ. Because you're so bent on believing that it's just about you. See, there's a way that's right to men. And it leads to death is what Proverbs 14, 12 says. It's just a way that it just appears right. Like I can do this. I don't need people. But it leads to death. It leads to to the death of good things. It leads to the death of relationships. It leads to the death of hope. It leads to the uh, the death of peace. The bottom line that we're going to see from this text, and you can tell me if I hit the bullseye at the end of this talk, the bottom line is this. God can bring his children from a broken past into a purpose-filled future. God can bring his children from a broken past into a purpose-filled future, but we can't, he will not do it, and it, it, it won't be your story if you're bent on this rugged individualist mentality that you can do it all by yourself. I don't care how strong you are, how smart you are, who your family is. There's things that you can't do. Let's go through our passage, Judges 11. We're going to actually read verses 1 through 3 and then camp out there for a minute, and then we're going to finish on 4 through 11. Yiptok, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Yiptok away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Yiptok fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. So he's going to become a great leader. And what happens in the historical writing of Judges, oftentimes um, the leader is called up because the people have disobeyed God and they've trusted in their pagan neighbors. So then God brings up a leader and in response to their mourning of their sin and they're grieving their sin and then God brings up a leader and that's what you see here. So Yiptok, he doesn't have the best of credentials but yet look and see uh, as we look at his past, let's see the kind of person that God uses and maybe this will surprise you. Let's go through it again, verse one. 
He was a mighty warrior. Now, that, that just makes sense. If you read the, the Old Testament, you see that God used a lot of mighty warriors. Here's where we kind of get off the rails on, the, on this, though. His mother was a prostitute. And because his mother was a prostitute and the rest of the family, Gilead and his wife had kids, and his mother was a prostitute, then he was the, the illegitimate son. And then he's actually cast away. So now he's actually fatherless, the kind of person that God uses. But there's more. He was the victim. He was the victim. He didn't do anything. I mean, he didn't, he didn't plan who his mom was going to be. The fact that his mom was going to be a prostitute and, and the rest of the people were going to have mom and dad there. He didn't get to choose this. That's just his life. He couldn't choose his life, but listen to me, he can choose how he he can choose how he responds to it. So he is the victim, but he doesn't play the victim role. He's rejected by his own family. He's treated unjustly and unfairly. He's not even the religious type. So just in case to be used of God, you think you need to be the religious type, he really wasn't. And he himself was deeply flawed. This is, this is a spiritual leader. This just doesn't make sense, does it? When you look at this, you're like, often, quite often what, what we think is for somebody to be a spiritual leader, they have to have this incredible spiritual pedigree. But look at the kind of person that God uses. The kind of person who just simply says yes. God knows of his past. He knows that his mom's a prostitute. He knows that he's considered the illegitimate son of the family. He knows that, that now his father's just cast him out and his, his brothers don't want him anymore. They don't care about him anymore. He knows that he's the victim. He knows that he's been rejected. He knows that he's been treated unjustly and unfairly. He even knows he's not the religious type and he knows how he's deeply flawed. And that becomes the type of person that God can use. Not the person who has it all together. But there's more. Verse 4. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war in Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Yiptok from the land of Tob. Verse 6. Come, they said, be our commander. It's like literally a military leader is what the word means. So we can fight the Ammonites. It's like, so stop there for a second. So they just, they kick him out. His family disowns him. Nobody cares about him. He's sent away from his family into the land of Tob, which is some distance away from, from where the rest of the family lives. So he's sent away. And now they're like, yeah, you can actually have some value for us. Could you come fight for us? Could you come be our military leader? Could, could you come help us now? But look what Yiptok says to them in verse 7. Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why, did, why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, well, nevertheless, we're turning to you now. See, they, they didn't have a good reason why they're turning to him at first. They're like, nevertheless, well, we're turning to you now. Can we just get over it? Just never mind what happened. Can we just get over it? It says, come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Now, this word is interesting. 
when he says head. See, at first, they're just, they're kind of baiting him in and says, hey, we need you to be our commander. We need you to be our military leader. We need you to do us a favor. But now that literally the word head, it literally means to be over. So now what they're advocating is, and I believe that what God is advocating through them, says you're not just going to be our military commander. You're not just going to be kind of the, the, you know, the, the joint chiefs of staff kind of thing. That's not what you're going to be. Now you're actually going to be our president. You're, you're not just going to come be our military leader. He says, no, now you're actually going to be in charge. Kind of an interesting way that that changes. So then he says in verse 9, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? Like, I would ask this question, too, if I was just kicked out of my family and kicked out of, out of my homeland. And now you're inviting me back. Like, I'd be like, really? Like, because this, this isn't like how my story began. Like, are you sure that this is what's going to happen? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. So now they're making a covenant. The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Yiptok went to the elders of Gilead and the people made him lead, or excuse me, made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So his past didn't define his future, but it certainly played a part in it. It certainly played a part. A couple of things I see from this. And it's kind of just a side note, really. In verse uh, 7 through 9, I, I start to see four different main characteristics. And maybe the reason uh, why it was that God ended up using Yiptok to do these things. Maybe these are some of the reasons. And I believe there's some application that would be here for us as well. First of all, you see that he was a controlled man. If you look at the way that he's controlling the dialogue back and forth with, with the elders... So he's, he's controlling the dialogue and he's asking the questions. He's pressing when he needs to press and he's pulling back when he needs to pull back. He is a controlled man. If you want to be used of God, allow God to be in control of your life. Just by saying yes. When you commit your life to Christ, you're saying, yes, God, I give you control of my life. I don't want to do this myself. I can't do this myself. I'm not just going to buy into the lie of rugged individualism where I think I can do everything myself and I don't need God. I can stiff arm God. I'm going to stiff arm people and I don't need any of that. No, no, we need to repent of that false belief. He's a controlled man. But I think we need to be, if you're a Christian, you need to be controlled by God. He's a contemplative man. He's a thinker. He's asking the right questions. See that also in verse 7. He's asking the right questions. For you and I, if you want to be used of God, sometimes we just have to ask God the right questions. We just have to ask God the right questions. Just ask Him the the question and say, God, show me what's going on right now. Show me why my life is chaos right now. Show me why that, that I don't have any friends right now. Show me why, God, that, that, that I just am so bent on busyness and doing everything myself. God, show me why. He was a contemplative man. He's just asking the right questions. Another thing you see, and this actually becomes from verses 12 through 31, he becomes a capable man. And also, 
In verses 10 and 11, he's just a man of the covenant. That now you see, after he's made this, uh, he says the Lord is, is our witness. So he's covenanting. They did this in the Old Testament over and over and over. They would make a covenant with, it wasn't just with person to person, but it was, it was God and person to person. That, the great picture really of the Trinity of making this covenant. Much like marriage today is a covenant. It's not just a decision, but it's a covenant between God and man and woman coming together. That too is a picture of the, the three. So he was a man of the covenant. I think one of the most encouraging things that, that I, I kind of gathered from his story, and I think this will speak into the story of our life, is this, that your life doesn't have to be defined by what happened to you. Your life doesn't have to be defined by what happened to you. It doesn't. Sure, they said it. They did it. You did it. You said it. Your dad left. Your mom left. You were raised by your grandparents. Of course. I mean, I, I, I'm, my heart breaks for that reality of your life. But your life doesn't have to be defined by what happened to you. It doesn't. You see, rugged individualism it leaves you to pick up the pieces of your life and try and make sense of things. But when you commit your life to God, God takes the pieces and he starts to put something, he put, starts putting things and connecting things together and then all of a sudden you realize that the mess that you thought was there is actually just a beautiful picture of God's grace. But, if you're bent on rugged individualism, that I can do this, I don't need God and I don't need people, you won't have any of those answers. Because let's be honest, you can't make sense of you. I mean, can you? Do you know why you do everything that you do? Of course not. I certainly don't know why I do everything that I do. This is actually one of the mysteries, Old and New Testament, is, is I don't, just don't know why that I I don't do the things that I ought to do, and I don't know why that uh, there's things that I do. So your life doesn't have to be defined by what happened to you. Also, I do want us to see that our lives have been affected by the things that we wish we could change, either positively or negatively. So you don't have to be defined by those things. But now... I want us to see at a deeper level that yes, your life has been affected by those things. The things that you wish you could change. Positive things and negative things. Of course. Some of you, maybe you suffered physical abuse. And man, I know you wish you, would, you could have changed that part of your story. But that story doesn't have to end with you. It doesn't have to end with you. Maybe your story's like mine where your parents divorced when you're four and you're just kind of left in the wake of that and you're like, and your life was really marred maybe for even decades like mine was because of the decision they made. Good grief. I, I tried to wish that away over and over and over. But that was the very pathway that God used for me to come to salvation in the first place. That God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes a hurt. 
So of course there's things that happen in our life, things that we wish that we could change. And our lives have been affected by the things that we wish we could change. But they don't have to define you. They don't. They don't have to define you. Another thing in, in this, I want us to see 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 says this. And I think this becomes so confusing for a lot of Christians because after folks give their life to Jesus, there's this false belief that, that they can just do everything on their own terms now. That once they've committed their life to Jesus, there's this false mentality of, well, everything that happened, uh, bef- everything that happened before Jesus just stays in the past, and now I just get to live in the future and live in the present and the future for Jesus. But, but, that's just not consistent with Scriptures. And this one in particular, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles. Now, who comforts us in our troubles. So far, so good, right? Look at the next two words. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. This means that as God redeems the brokenness in you and as God makes you whole, then he uses the comfort that he himself has given to you to then go out and comfort others. That's what he's saying. That ultimately the Christian life isn't even about you. It's about living for the glory of God and just just enjoying the comfort that the God of all comfort provides and extending that comfort to those who have struggled the kinds of troubles and struggles that we have had. To me, that is so incredible. That's such a great promise of the gospel that the story just doesn't end with us. It just begins again in someone else. It just begins again in someone else. So that the God of all comfort, as he extends comfort to us, that the, then as we're redeemed and as then we're made whole, then we can extend that comfort to someone else who is suffering like we are. So of course there's things that we wish we could change. Of course But when God redeems you, he brings your past with you so you can comfort others. He brings your past with you so you can comfort others. Listen to me, Christian. Don't wish away your story. Don't wish away your story. Don't wish away just even the, the, the hardship that you went through as a kid. Don't just wish that away. You need to allow God to to do a work on your heart. Because if you don't allow God to do a work on your heart, you're never going to have the answers that you long for. You're never going to have the strength that you long for. You're never going to have the peace that you long for. You're never going to have the wholeness that you long for. And unfortunately, you'll never be able to go and extend the comfort to someone else who's struggling like you are. So when God redeems you, he brings your past with you so you can comfort others. Because there's other people who are suffering with the same afflictions that you are. 
the same ones. When I look at Yiptok's story, I see that he was a despised savior for an undeserving people. He was. Just like Jesus. He was a despised savior for an undeserving people. People like me. Isaiah 53, 3 says this. He, being Jesus, was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. He turned, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. All of humanity just didn't care. See, he, Jesus, was the unexpected leader. I mean, what good comes from Nazareth? He was the unexpected leader. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected. The man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. That's Jesus. See, I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or not, but man, I want you to be. I want you to be. I want you to know to the, to the depths of your soul, I want you to know that God loves you, that his love is so satisfying so satisfying. It's rooted in, in a rugged cross, not rugged individualism. In a rugged cross that he was despised for you. He was rejected for you. He was a man of sorrows for you. He was acquainted with the deepest grief for you and for me. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Verse 4 of the same passage says this. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. You see, this is how some people respond to the gospel. They look at the gospel and they hear it and they say, well, well surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. But then they just consider him, say, well, he was just, just consider him smitten by God and just stricken by God and he was punished by God and I just don't know why in the world that happened. He did it for you and I. He did it for you and I. The reason why Jesus, the, the telling of, of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is the greatest story ever told, it's because it's the only story that's ever told. It's the story of redemption. There's redemption everywhere. And I believe he wants to redeem your past. The things that you've done wrong. Things that you've done wrong. The things that you've done wrong. That God never wastes a hurt. Now, he never wastes a hurt if you say yes. You see, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, that hurt is all yours. 
But when you say yes to Jesus, you commit your life to Jesus. You commit your future to Jesus. You commit your marriage to Jesus. You commit every, your finances to Jesus. You commit your kids to Jesus. You, you commit your service to Jesus. All of a sudden, you start to see those, those pieces of the puzzle coming together and the great mosaic of grace is lived out in your life. And you may not be able to explain it in any other way and saying, oh, I just feel so comforted by God. But what unlocked it was yes. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? I mean, have you really? I'm not talking about that time in vacation Bible school when you're five years old and you, in, in the vacation Bible school leader that raised their hand and said, anybody want to accept Jesus? And, and yes, oh, he said, yeah, oh, I want to receive Jesus because when you receive Jesus, everybody smiles and they give you a candy bar, right? And like you really weren't raising your hand to receive Jesus. It was kind of about the Snickers because they really satisfy. Remember that? I would say if that, if that is your salvation story, well, I was a kid and I just gave my life to Jesus. And if your life does not look any differently, you are probably not saved at all. You're probably not. Probably not. And you could have easily slipped into the lie of rugged individualism. And yet we falsely believe that we're saved. So I want us to reflect just for a moment on Isaiah 53.3. Can we put that back on the screen? Thank you. I want us to reflect and, and look at this screen. Screens, whichever one's closest to you. And I'm just going to have us sit in just a couple moments of awkward silence. But I want you to look at the screen and I want you to, to start to personalize this. This reality. I want you to start to personalize the fact that that although Jesus was despised, he was despised for you. That he was rejected. And all of the things that are, that are here about him being a man of sorrow and acquainted with deepest grief, all of these things were to create a way for people to receive him. For people to receive him. So I want us to take just a couple moments and I want you to reflect upon that. I want you to personalize that. Maybe for you, you, you are very familiar with this, this passage and maybe you just need to just close your eyes. Maybe there's just some confessing that you need to do. Maybe there's just some, some early level repentance. Say, God, I am sorry that I have been living my life for me. God, I am sorry. I am so sorry that I have made a mess of my past. Maybe you just need to, to just stop and say, God, I, my life is a wreck right now and I know it's my fault. And maybe that just needs to be the very thing that unlocks a bright future for you. But you have to begin there. Because a field-tested faith 
is not rooted in rugged individualism. It's rooted in the gospel message of Jesus Christ.